following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Let's take our Bibles now and turn to Paul's epistle to Timothy as we're going to pick up again today with our study of 1 Timothy, his first epistle to Timothy. And uh, we're picking up again at verse 18 of chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. Picking up at verse 18, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, with some having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered, suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you now for your holy word, and as we consider it, we pray that you would help us to understand it, uh, to be uh, those who believe your word, embrace it with all of our hearts. We pray your spirit would cause your word to penetrate deeply into our hearts that we might bring forth fruit unto eternal life and fruit that brings glory and honor to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you are familiar with uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, the Pilgrim's Progress, the book by John Bunyan. It's an allegory uh, of the Christian life and of Christian experience. <clears throat> and in book two, we meet a character named Valiant for Truth. Uh, Mr. Greatheart is in the way to the celestial city when he meets a man with his sword drawn and his face all bloody. And when asked, who are you? He says, I am one whose name is Valiant for Truth. I am a pilgrim and am going to the celestial city. He says, I am from dark land, for there I was born, and there my father and mother are still. But he had been called out of dark land by one named Mr. Tell True. It was the truth of the gospel that had called him out of nature's darkness and had set his feet on the path to glory through faith in Jesus Christ. But he also tells Greatheart about the battles that he had met with along the way, enemies that had attacked him trying to turn him back, and had, had, uh, had left their marks upon him. But with his sword, he had overcome them all thus far. He says later, I believed what Mr. Telltrue said, and therefore came out of dark land, got into the way, fought all that set themselves against me, and by believing am come to this place. And then Bunyan, from the mouth of Valiant for Truth, produces a poem uh, that was later published, and uh, various British hymnals and sung in churches. And it goes like this. Who would true valor see? Let him come hither. One here will constant be, come when to come weather. There's no discouragement shall make him once relent. His first avowed intent to be a pilgrim. Whoso beset him round with dismal stories. Do but themselves confound. His strength the more is. No lion can him fright. He'll with a giant fight, 
But he will have a right to be a pilgrim. Many of you didn't know that Bunyan was the first Christian rapper. <laughs> a Bunyan was capturing an important emphasis we see in Scripture when it comes to the Christian life. That the narrow road to glory, the Christian life in this world, in the Christian mission as well, is a warfare. Not a physical war, but a spiritual war. It's a fight against the powers of darkness and against the indwelling sin of our flesh and the allurements of a fallen world, which are the allies of our great enemy, the devil. Well, as we return to our study of this first epistle to Timothy, Paul is reminding Timothy of this reality. Uh, the central concern in this passage is found in the end of verse 18. Excuse me just a moment. He says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning them, that by them you may wage the good warfare. That's the central concern of the passage, that Timothy would wage a good warfare. And the Apostle Paul is describing then the Christian ministry and the Christian life as a warfare, and there is this concern that Timothy successfully waged this good warfare. And in this passage, Paul also gives him encouragement and instruction regarding how to do this. Now, last time, uh, the focus of the entire message was simply on this way in which Paul describes the Christian life, his description of the life of faith and devotion and service to Jesus Christ as a warfare. Or it could be translated by the word fight, wage the good warfare. Or as the New American Standard has it, fight the good fight. And I drew out from this description several very simple, basic, and yet very important truths that we need to be clear on in our minds. For example, first of all, this reminds us that the Christian life is indeed a warfare. Now, as I pointed out last time, someone might wish to limit this description to the Christian ministry since Timothy was a minister of the gospel, but I don't think it's right to do that because, as we also saw, uh, this same kind of description is given in the New Testament for the Christian life in general. A life that does, of course, involve for all of us various spheres of Christian service and ministry. And indeed, for Timothy, that sphere included being a preacher and a shepherd of God's people. And Paul is certainly very concerned here in the context that Timothy be faithful to his calling. But it's more than that. Uh, being faithful to his calling as a minister of the gospel was simply one part for Timothy of remaining faithful to Christ and living the Christian life in general, persevering to, in persevering faith to the end. So as I sought to demonstrate, this doesn't just apply to Timothy. It applies to all of us who profess to be followers and servants of Jesus Christ. The Christian life is a warfare. The entrance into the Christian life is by grace alone. We become Christians when we are born of the Spirit and we put our trust in Jesus Christ and His finished work alone for forgiveness and acceptance with God. But having become a Christian, we begin to live the Christian life, the life of sanctification and devotion to our Savior, a life of persevering in the faith. And we're reminded here in our text that the living of the Christian life is not a picnic. It's a war. We have enemies, real enemies, who are seeking to destroy our souls to cause us to suffer shipwreck, as Paul describes it at the end of verse 13. Enemies that are seeking to hinder us, to destroy our testimony for Christ, and even to lead us, if possible, to apostasy. We saw that these enemies include Satan and his demonic hosts, 
the allurements and temptations and also the hostility of an evil world and there is also the presence of indwelling sin in our own hearts. And we also saw that the Christian life is not only a warfare, it is a warfare that you and I have to wage. And yes, it's true that and important we understand that we wage this warfare not in dependence upon ourselves and our own strength, but in dependence upon God and upon the promised help of the Holy Spirit who has been given to us in union with Christ. But it's still a warfare that we must wage. We're not to be passive in this. We must actively and earnestly engage in this conflict or we'll be defeated. So we have here in our text reference to the warfare we must wage. But then the Apostle Paul gives Timothy both encouragement and warning to motivate him in this warfare, and he also tells him and tells us how to wage this warfare with ultimate success. And this is what I want to at least begin to look at this morning in the time remaining. What does Paul underscore to help Timothy Timothy to fight this good fight well? Well, he mentions several things in this passage. Continuing to have and to maintain faith in the gospel. Also having and maintaining a good conscience, verse 19a. And then also taking note of and being warned by the example of those who have failed to do this and have suffered shipwreck concerning the faith, verses 19b to 19.20, to verse 20. But before these, first of all, the first thing Paul mentions, and this is as far as we're going to get this morning, is he says in effect, Timothy... You must remember that it's your solemn obligation to wage this good warfare. It is your solemn obligation to wage this good warfare. Timothy, you are under obligation. It's your duty. It's a commission and a calling and a responsibility that has been given to you and for which you are accountable to God and to the church. And you must remember this. That's the best way I could think of to summarize the emphasis of Paul's words at the beginning of verse 18. He says, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Now, there are really three interrelated things here. There is a charge, a command, this charge. There is a commission, I commit to you or I entrust to you. And underlying that, there is a reminder of the confirmation of that commission, the confirmation of the church by means of the prophecies that were made concerning him. And Timothy's being called to remember these things and to be moved and encouraged by them to wage this good warfare. And again, there are three things here. First of all, a charge. This charge I commit to you, or you might say a translated command. Uh, This command I commit to you. Think of a military command. And Paul is referring back uh, to the command that he gave to Timothy earlier in this chapter in verse 3. And then expands on down to verse 7. The command to remain in Ephesus that he might teach sound gospel doctrine and deal with the false teachers who are infecting the church with their errors. Paul underscores to Timothy again that this comes as an apostolic command. Yes, serving Christ as a minister of the gospel is a great privilege and a great joy, but it's also your duty. Don't forget that, Timothy. You are under obligation. Now, Paul uses this kind of language several times 
in the pastoral epistles to underscore Timothy's solemn obligation to fight the good fight, which in this case, among other things, for him involved fulfilling the ministry that had been given to him. For example, chapter 5, verse 21, Paul writes, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things. It's a strong, sobering, serious language. I call you to account before God, the Lord Jesus, and the elect angels. Remember, Timothy, you will be held accountable for what you do. Remember that you are under the eye of God and under the eye of the Lord Jesus and even of the elect angels. Again, we see this kind of language in chapter 6, verses 12 to 13. I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment, keep this charge, without spot, blameless, unto our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. Paul, like a general in the Lord's army, is reminding Lieutenant Timothy of his duty, his solemn obligation before God. This comes out in another way in our text. Secondly, he speaks not only in terms of a command, but in terms of a commission. Notice the language, this charge I commit to you. I commit to you. Paratithamai or may. Paratithamai. I commit to you. I entrust to you. That's the idea. It's a word that carries the idea of entrusting or depositing something to someone for safekeeping. It comes from the banking world. People entrust their money to the care of the bank. Uh, When a mother leaves her baby in the church nursery, she is committing, she is entrusting the care of that baby to the nursery worker. When a man is commissioned to political office, the well-being of those who elected him is being entrusted to him. Well, certain things had been committed to Timothy's care. He was entrusted with responsibilities. In this case, a responsibility for the care of the church and for the guarding and teaching of sound gospel doctrine. And Paul reminds him of this here. He reminds him of this trust. And Paul also often uses the noun form of this word in his letters to Timothy to remind him of the solemn trust committed to him. 1 Timothy 6.20, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. 2 Timothy 1.14, that good thing which was committed to you, the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. But not only is there a command and a commission, a trust committed to him, Paul also reminds Timothy thirdly that this responsibility entrusted to him was confirmed by the church. We have this interesting language. Paul says, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy. There's a solemn charge, but Paul also wants to give that charge with a, with a, with a warmth in his heart toward Timothy. Son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you. Now what is Paul talking about? Well, as you know, many of you, before the canon of Scripture was completed, the gift of prophecy was active in the churches. They couldn't go to the New Testament For direction and confirmation, the New Testament wasn't written or compiled yet. But together with the Old Testament scriptures, God spoke to the church through the apostles, 
and also sometimes through the gift of prophecy. And, and we read about in Ephesians chapter 2 how the church has been built, Ephesians 2 verse 20, upon the revelatory foundation of the apostles and prophets. And there's talking about New Testament prophets. Upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, we're not still laying that foundation. That revelatory foundation has been laid now, and it's inscripturated for us, and we have it in our hands in God's word. But the gift of prophecy was active in the church before the completion and the, and the um, compilation of the canon. Well, Paul is reminding Timothy that there was a public confirmation involved in his appointment to the ministry. And this included prophecies that were made concerning him, or the language could be translated leading to him or pointing to him. And when did this happen? Well, it seems that Paul is referring to the time when Timothy was formally set apart and ordained to the gospel ministry. Uh, for example, you may remember we see something like this when Paul himself and Barnabas were set apart and ordained uh, in the church at Antioch. We read in Acts 13, 2 and 3 that the Spirit said. Now, how did the Spirit say? Well, presumably through prophecy. We, we read at the beginning there, there were certain teachers and prophets in the church in Antioch. And that the Spirit said, separate to me Barnabas and Paul to the work to which I have called them. And then... They laid hands on them, they ordained them, and they sent them away. They were formally ordained to the work. And again, I think this is what this is referring to in our text, the time of Timothy's ordination. And what we read later in this epistle supports this understanding. In chapter 4, verse 14, Paul says this, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. He's referring to his ordination. And by the way, a legitimate way of understanding by prophecy or through prophecy is that the text is not referring to the means by which the ministerial gift was given, but to the attendant circumstances. In other words, the gift that was given to you accompanied by prophecy is a possible translation of the Greek text, and I think it's probably a better translation. Accompanied by prophecy and by the laying of the on of the hands of the eldership. And this occurred at Timothy's ordination. But be that as it may, the point is, <clears throat> his calling to the Christian ministry was publicly confirmed by the church. And Paul is reminding Timothy of that solemn day. As we've commented before, there are indications in the epistles, Paul's epistles to Timothy, that he tended at times to be a bit timid, and a bit reluctant, and a bit fearful. So Paul reminds him that God has called him to this work and has pointed him out through his prophetic word. And the church has recognized this, the elders have recognized that this, and have ordained him. Indeed, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 1.6 that he was also present on that day, that he himself laid hands on Timothy on that day. So Paul is saying to Timothy, remember that. Remember that special day. Remember what the people said to you. Remember what was said about you. Remember what the church did to you then. Remember the commitments and the vows that were made that day. The commission you received on that solemn occasion. Remember the significance and importance of those events. And let that move you. Let that motivate you to wage and to keep on waging, Timothy, a good warfare. Now, let me break off here to make a number of applications. First of all, seeing that we have a number of seminary students 
in our congregation, and ministerial aspirants, there are some lessons here for you and related to that for us as a congregation when it comes to recognizing and setting men apart for the ministry. What constitutes a biblical conferral of the office? Well, it involves two sides. From the divine side, a man must have the moral and domestic, or home, the moral and the domestic qualifications laid out by Paul later in this epistle, in chapter 3. And he must have the gift of teaching, a proven ability to teach, which is one of those qualifications, to teach in a way that is edifying and helpful to God's people. But it's not just that you think that this is true about yourself, or Aunt Jane does, or Mama does. No, the church must see this and be able to confirm it with good conscience and the elders must be convinced of this so as to be willing to lay hands upon you for the office. Now, we don't have prophets in the church today, but we still have the prophetic word now inscripturated for us, the word of God, the Holy Scriptures, and we have the New Testament in which Christ has laid out for us in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the qualifications for the office of elder and pastor. A picture has been drawn for us by the Holy Spirit with a scripture pen, a portrait by which we can identify those upon whom God has put his calling. But the office is not rightfully conferred until both the church and his existing elders are able in good conscience to confirm this, that this is indeed the case. Just it happened with Timothy. We don't call ourselves into the Christian ministry. And it's not just left up to your own opinion of yourself or to the opinion of a couple of sweet old ladies in the church or your mom and dad or Uncle Joe. Often whenever a young man begins to serve in the church and perhaps he's, he's, he's growing, he's showing himself to be a serious-minded Christian, perhaps he's given an opportunity to give a devotion or to speak on some occasion, there will be well-meaning folks who desire to encourage him, and they will say, that was very good, I was really blessed by that. Or they may come to him and say, you know, you ought to think about being a preacher. And if more than one person says that, if two people have said that to him, the seeds of that idea are then planted in his mind, and it can be hard to get them out. No matter how well he may be doing in his current vocation, serving the Lord in that context of the vocation that he currently has, there is this nagging feeling he begins to have that that's second best, and he becomes discontent and can even become a bit resentful if the rest of the church is not seeing that I should be a pastor or if the pastors are not seeing it. So we need to be careful here. In such a case, this man may be called by God to the Christian ministry, or he may not be. More is needed to determine that question. It's not a prophetic call from God just because some nice Christian people wishing to encourage you say maybe you ought to be a preacher. More is required, my dear brothers. The evaluation of your moral character, the testing of your gifts, the evaluation of your family life and your leadership of your home, and the consensus of the church in that evaluation, a summons from the church, and also the consensus 
of the elders who are willing to lay hands upon you, confirming their agreement that they see that this man does indeed demonstrate the gifts and the qualifications to serve in this office. It's when all of those factors come together that you can indeed labor in the Christian ministry with the confidence that I didn't put myself in this position. Christ put me here. I didn't presume to take this work upon myself. I am here by apostolic appointment, command, commission, and by the confirmation of the church. And I can tell you, my dear friends, that there will be times in a man's ministry when he will desperately need that confidence. Times when Satan comes to attack you. Times when there's troubles and and people attack you. At times when Satan comes to discourage you and you begin to wonder, should I even be doing this? Times when you're sitting up on the platform before the sermon. And you know that there are some pretty, pretty strong things that you must say in that sermon if you're going to be true to the text. Some challenging things and convicting things. And Satan comes to you and says, who do you think you are getting up there to preach? How presumptuous. Just look at yourself. How unworthy you are. How dare you stand up there to preach these things to others. And it's then, my dear friend, that you'll need this assurance, this confidence that I didn't run uncalled. I didn't presume to take this office upon myself. I was properly recognized and called and confirmed by the church to this work in the God-appointed way. Timothy needed that confidence to wage a good warfare. And Paul is reminding him here in our text of these things. And he's reminding him here in our text of his duty. A duty that had rightfully been entrusted to him and confirmed by the church. Now normally this confirmation is given in a very ordinary and common way according to procedures established by the church in its constitution or uh, uh, in its traditions for implementing those principles we find in the word. And sometimes it's in an extraordinary and unusual way though the principles are still upheld. For example, most of you have probably heard of John Knox. Uh, we were just studying about him in the historical theology course in the seminary, and he lived during the Reformation in Scotland in the 16th century. It was a time of great national peril, and Knox had been giving some private lectures in St. Andrews, what we would probably call today some you know, private Bible studies he was leading. And I say private, but many had started coming to hear him because of his message and because he was so gifted. And people began to urge him to become a full-time preacher and a, and a pastor, to be set apart to the gospel ministry. But he totally rejected the idea, saying to them that he would not run where God had not called him. So here was the situation. People were saying, and church leaders were beginning to see it, that this man should be preaching. He should be doing more than just uh, teaching private Bible studies in St. Andrews. He should be preaching. But Knox was reluctant. He wouldn't force himself. He wouldn't do it on his own without a proper calling and confirmation. So this is the plan that they came up with. We will publicly command him to take up this work by the mouth of our pastor. A plan that the pastor, John Ruff, agreed to. So here's how it happened. Knox was in the congregation listening to the sermon of John Ruff. Suddenly Ruff stopped in the sermon and he looked directly at Knox. And he said to him, Brother, you shall not be offended, albeit that I speak unto that which I have in charge, even from all those who are present, which is this, in the name of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, and in the name of those present 
uh, those that presently call you by my mouth, I charge you that you refuse not this holy vocation, but that you take upon you this public office and charge of preaching, even as you look to avoid God's heavy displeasure and desire that he shall multiply his graces with you. Then Ruff looked to the congregation and he asked for their approval of his words. Was not this your charge to me and do you not approve this vocation? They answered, yes it was. We approve it. And John Knox, as he listened to this, he was overwhelmed and he burst into tears and he ran out of the congregation. He went to his room. But God used this experience to convince him that he was indeed called by God. And he needed that. When you see the, when you see the, the trials and the difficulties that he endured in his Christian ministry, he needed that certainty, that confidence that it was God who put him into this position, a call confirmed by the church and his pastors to the ministry of preaching. So in our text, we have a command, a commission, and a reminder of the solemn occasion when Timothy was formally set aside to this work. And Paul is mentioning these things that, or so that, he might wage. By remembering them, Timothy might wage a good warfare. But now, what is the application of all this for those of us who are not uh, ministers of the gospel or aspiring ministers of the gospel? Remember, the Christian life is a warfare, not just for pastors, but for every Christian. And there are things here that apply to all of us. First of all, this passage reminds us that a sense of duty and obligation is an important motivation in the Christian life. A sense of duty and obligation is an important motivation in the Christian life. Now, I think this is very important and something that we need to hear in our day. And I say that because we are living in a time in which the word duty is almost treated like a bad word for the Christian. In answer to the question, what did the Scriptures principally teach? The Shorter Catechism says, the Scriptures principally teach what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. What duty God requires of man? Duty, that word sounds strange and foreboding to many modern Christians. The word duty is often equated with legalism. And there are even well-meaning Christians who seem to consider the concepts of duty and delight to be opposed to each other. Duty is a dreadful concept to be avoided. Why is it often thought of that way? Well, first, this is something of the zeitgeist of modern Western society. That's a German word that speaks of the defining spirit or mood of a particular period in history. Well, the prevailing mood of our culture is uncomfortable with the concept of duty. And this has infected the church. And there are a number of things, I think, that have contributed to that. There's the exaltation of personal pleasure and immediate gratification. There's the cult of the individual, what makes me feel good, what gives me pleasure, self-expression. Self-fulfillment is most important. And with this comes a downplaying of responsibility to others or to something of a higher and transcendent value. Theologically, Christians often struggle with the concept of duty because it's thought to be inconsistent with the love and the grace of God in Christ. It's thought to be legalistic and opposed to the spirit of the gospel. I should never do what is right because it's my duty. I'm to do it because in my heart I delight in it. In fact, 
if we do something out of a sense of duty and not because we eagerly desire to do it and find delight in doing it, our actions are completely worthless before God. This is the way some Christians think. Now, of course, God wants us to delight in doing his will. And delight is one of the motivations for doing our duty. Psalm 100 verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. Psalm 37 4, delight yourself in the Lord. James even says, consider it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that in them God is working out his purpose for your good. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 7 22, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. So yes, the Christian should delight in doing his duty and finds joy in doing his duty and should even be motivated by joy in Christ and his salvation when doing his duty. But that's not the full picture. We must not set up duty and delight as though they are opposed to each other. First of all, the Apostle Paul also said, Romans 1.14, I am a debtor. Or it could be translated, I am under obligation, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the free, to preach the gospel. I have a profound sense of obligation to do this. It is my duty to do this. This is a responsibility that God has given to me. And it's the sense of duty toward God and toward men that's one of the things that keeps me at it. He made the same point. To the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9 when he said, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul says, I am duty bound. I'm under a divine obligation. And woe is me if I neglect to fulfill it. You remember that little parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 17, 7 and following? Jesus said, In which of you... Having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded of him? I think not. Now listen to the point Jesus is making. The point he's illustrating by this parable. He says, so likewise, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants, we have done what was our duty to do. What we have done was our duty to do. And if Jesus is saying anything there, he's telling us that in our service, in our devotion to him, we're not to think of ourselves as earning something from God, putting God some way in debt to us. No, we have simply done what it is our duty to do. And the fact that it's our duty to do it, that ought to be enough. That ought to carry weight with us and ought to be one of the motivations for why we do it. But doesn't that smack of legalism? Now listen, here's the difference. The legalist does what he believes is his duty with the hope of gaining God's favor by doing so, by the work that he does. He does what he believes is his duty, thinking to bring God under debt to him. But the, the believer is to do his duty out of a sense of gratitude and love to God for the favor he has already given to him in Christ. Indeed, just before this text, Paul has been reminding Timothy, you remember in, in verses 12 to 17, of the glorious grace of the gospel. You remember when we opened that passage up? 
The long-suffering and mercy of God towards sinners. That Christ Jesus, verse 15, came into the world to save sinners. And reminding Timothy of the grace of God that had been shown to him. But that grace doesn't not nullify the concept of duty. It should only increase our sense of duty. It's grace received. The love of Christ is death for my sins. The salvation that has freely been given to me in Jesus Christ. This is the thing above all else that motivates the Christian to do his duty. The delight is not always in the act of doing your duty. It's often in the reason you're doing your duty. And in trusting that in doing so, this is what is ultimately good for you. But then there's also the fact that we aren't glorified yet. We still have remaining sin. Sometimes our hearts are out of gear. And we aren't motivated in our souls like we should be. But it's always better to do what is right, even when our heart feels hard, than to neglect to do so. The answer is not to neglect your duty, but to do it confessing your hardness of heart and asking the Lord to give you grace to soften it. And to give you the delight in your duty that you ought to have. But if we sharply oppose duty and delight... We run the risk of beginning to think that the Lord's commands become optional if I really don't feel like doing them. Or if I don't find myself full of delight at the thought of doing them. But no, my dear brothers and sisters, duty is not a bad word. Duty and delight are not opposed to each other for the Christian. Sometimes delight precedes duty and accompanies duty. But at other times we do our duty, trusting in God's grace that in doing so, ultimately that is the pathway to delight. Even though at present we aren't feeling any delight at all. But find it hard and difficult. You remember the scripture says that for the joy set before him, our Lord endured the cross, despising the shame. Notice it wasn't for the joyful experience of suffering on the cross. It was for the joy set before him. There was nothing pleasant in suffering. Indeed, in the garden, he cried as sweat mingled with blood, soaked his agonizing body. Oh, God, if it is possible, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. I will do what it is my duty to do. He was driven both by a sense of duty to his father and by love for his people. And it was for the joy Not that he necessarily felt at that moment, but for the joy that he expected and trusted would ultimately result from his suffering on the cross that he endured the shame. So my point is that one of the things that ought to motivate us in the Christian warfare is a deep and profound sense of duty. It's our duty. Our duty to the God who has saved us, to our Savior who has loved us and has given himself for us. It is our duty to the one who who fulfilled that commission that was given to him for our sake, who went to Calvary and there suffered and died and was obedient even under death. It's our duty to our family, our duty to the church and to the cause of Christ, a sense of responsibility. I have a responsibility for which I must one day give an account. Duty rightly conceived is the love that does what is right for the object of that love, even when doing so doesn't feel so delightful at the time. We do it because it's right. We do it because we're committed to do it. We do it because we are under obligation to do it. But as a Christian, it's an obligation we have embraced and placed ourselves under out of devotion to our Savior 
who loved us and gave himself for us. Often when my alarm goes off in the morning, should I say often or should I say always? (laughs) When my alarm goes off in the morning, I don't feel like getting up. There's a part of me that wants to sleep in for a few more hours. I'm not full of delight. I'm not leaping out of my bed with great enthusiasm. But what is one of the things that gets me up and will get you up? So you have time for your morning devotions. Time to spend before God in prayer. One of the things that will get you to church on Sunday morning and on Sunday evening and in prayer meeting as you committed to do when you became a member of the church, even when there are many obstacles in the way. Your tiredness, your remaining sin, laziness, other things that are pulling at you and seeking to keep you away. Well, one of the things that will, that will make you do it is a sense of duty. A sense of duty to my Savior and to his people. I remember someone telling me, I won't say who the pastor was, but you guys would know who it was. He, this man had been missing church every Sunday evening. There was no reason for him to be missing the services. And he kept, he was kind of in and out with his attendance. He was a member of the church. And one day he met the pastor at the door. And the pastor said, brother, I've been missing you. And he said, yes, pastor. He said, you know, I have to tell you on Sunday evenings, I'm so tired. I'm just completely worn out. I just, I just don't feel like coming to church. He said, you know what the pastor said? He said, you know what? I understand. I completely understand. You know, I feel exactly the same way. But you know what I do? I grab myself by the back of my neck and I jerk myself out of the chair and I go to church. It's my duty as a Christian. I've made commitments. I've made commitments to God's people. I've made commitments to His church. I I, I do it out of love and devotion to my Savior. It's my responsibility. It's my duty to Him. You see, one of the things is this conviction, his sense of duty to my Savior and to his people. And the conviction that ultimately there is greater joy in doing my duty than I will ever find by neglecting it. And there's one final application I want to make this morning related to this. Secondly, we see here in our text that casting our thoughts back to those solemn occasions in which our commitments to Christ and to others were formally sealed before witnesses. Doing that is good for us when we're tempted to turn back or to give up on those commitments that we've made. Timothy is pointed back to his ordination to the Christian ministry. Remember, Timothy, remember the things that were done to you that day, the things that were said to you the vows that were taken, the hands that were laid upon you before the whole church. Look back, remember, and let that motivate you to keep up the fight, to continue to wage the good warfare, to be faithful to the calling you have received. Now, we aren't all pastors or gospel ministers, but there are other God-appointed events and ceremonies, if you will, in the church And in the life of every Christian in which our devotion to Christ and to others are embodied and expressed in formal and public ways. Think of your baptism, my friend. The larger catechism, the shorter larger catechism exhorts us to improve our baptism. What does it mean? That's old English way of saying to make use of your baptism. It's not just something that happened in the past and then you forget about it. That's done. You're to think about it. You're to remember it, what it means. That day in which you stood before the church and confessed your faith in Jesus Christ 
That day when you took on the badge of discipleship before the people of God. That day when by your baptism it was pictured and declared to you and to all that your sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ and that being united to Christ, your old man has been buried in his tomb and you have been raised to walk in newness of life. Remember that day. Remember what it meant and let that be added motivation to keep believing, to keep up the fight, to wage the good warfare, not to give up and give in and turn back in the face of whatever trial or temptation may have come upon you. And then, brothers and sisters, remember the vows that you made when you became a member of the church. If you're a church member, the church covenant, the responsibilities and duties of being a faithful, committed, active, and involved member of the church. You made a commitment. You made a covenant before God and before the church. Why do we have church covenants? They remind us of the commitments that we have made to the church before God and witnesses. It would do us all well to go back and to read our church covenant. And where you failed your Savior by neglecting those things to repent, to cast yourself upon his mercy and to renew your commitment. And then think about marriage. Marriage. The marriage ceremony. The marriage vows. Made before God and witnesses. For better or for worse. For richer or for poorer. In sickness and in health. Till death us do part. A vow made before witnesses, before God himself. I am to love my wife as Christ loved the church. But not only that, one part of what that means is that I've made a commitment to her. And it is my duty before God and to the Savior who has bought me with his blood to keep that commitment. Even when there are difficult times in our marriage. Even when perhaps we're in a period in which affection has waned and romance seems to be lacking. When difficult times come in your marriage, what do you do? Do you just throw in the towel? Well, that's pretty much what people do today. They just glibly make commitments and vows at the wedding ceremony. They never really intend to keep. I'll keep this as long as it's fun, as long as I enjoy it, as long as everything's going well. No, my friend, I charge you. And you must charge yourself to remember what has been entrusted to you and the commitments that were made before God and many witnesses. And you have to work on those problems. And you have to keep at it because it's your duty. And it's as you do so that eventually the affections are renewed and the romance begins to come back. But whatever happens, you are obligated before the God who has saved you to be true to that woman who is your wife or to be true to that man who is your husband. And I've often said in marriage counseling, one thing about the marriage covenant for the Christian, assuming a person's a Christian, which means they are trusting in Jesus Christ, they have a heart that desires to do all his holy will. And I've often said, one thing about the marriage covenant for the Christian is that apart from sexual unfaithfulness or willful desertion, there is no getting out from under that commitment that you have made without grievously sinning against God. Therefore, if you are a Christian, you have a choice to make. 
And this is one of the wonderful things about the marriage covenant. I'm in a, I'm in a, I can't get out of this thing, man. I'm in it. So what am I going to do? I've got a choice. Either be miserable the rest of your life in this marriage. Or by God's grace, do everything you can and that God's word says you must do to make it better. Trusting in God to help you by opting out and giving up. It's not an option. This is the spirit that we are to have in all areas of our Christian warfare as God's people. And may God help us to do so, remembering him who in the shadow of Golgotha refused to give in and to give up and to be deterred. But he kept his commitment to the Father and he did his duty for the Father's glory and out of love to our souls and he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross for our salvation. Praise his name. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word today. We pray that you would bless it to our souls, that it would not fall to the ground, but that we would embrace it and that we would act upon it, that we would believe it and love it, and that our lives would be shaped by your holy word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org. Dot O-R-G.